Okay. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, thanks for sticking with us as we uh, I work through a couple of technical difficulties. Um, I'm really, really excited about today's uh, stream. Uh, I've known Tyler kind of, I guess, virtually for a while. But in preparation for this conversation, I went down so many rabbit holes um, at, at an absolutely stunning career. Um, I want to just frame this with some of the work he's done before we start digging into it. Um, so Tyler Bates um, began as a, as a rock musician playing guitar, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but just so you can see like where he's come, um, he's composed uh, for the Deadpool franchise, Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, John Wick franchise, 300, Watchmen, Sucker Punch, Atomic uh, uh, Blonde, many more. Um, 11 of those films opened number one at the box office. Um, he's also written and composed for television, um, Californication, uh, Salem, The Punisher, The Exorcist. Um, he, he wrote for the California Adventure Ride for uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, he also collaborated uh, on Marilyn Manson's record, The Pale Emperor, which Rolling Stone uh, hailed as the number one metal album of 2015. Uh, he reprised that work in 2017, um, working on the Heaven Upside Down record. Um, we'll talk about many of the of the, the musicians that he's collaborated with in our, our deeper conversation. For folks on Twitch that are gamers, he's written for God of War Ascension, uh, Killzone Shadowfall, Far Cry New Dawn. Um, and one of the things that's really kind of fun and exciting, and I ran through just over the past few days, is he both directed and composed for Dark Knight's metal soundtrack. Um, their, their metal verse. That's really fun. And he, he, he pulled in so many wonderful musicians uh, and voice actors for that. So we'll talk more about that. Um, I could go on really, and, and we'll touch on this. I mean, the, the man has composed for Cirque du Soleil um, and way back where so I think some of his, his um, musical stylings actually began. And I want to talk about this with the band Pet, uh, which was signed uh, when he was a younger person. So Without further ado, let me bring on Tyler Bates. There you are, Tyler. I need to frame you in a little bit better. That's my... Uh... We're on about a four-second repeat. <laughs> so I'm hearing you, and then I'm coming back around four seconds later. Okay, no sweat. Um, so, Tyler, uh, you are a man of many musical... Like you've taken your music into so many different channels. Um, and I want to actually touch on uh, a great many of them and talk about some of the, um, you know, the way that you've approached going into those. Um, I have to tell you that one of the things that fascinates me and uh, excites me about you is the, the narrative sense that you bring to your work. Um, it's something that um, I do some of myself um, and you, you managed to do this, uh, so much of this, um, in the absence of lyrics. Uh, and of course, that's what composers do. But um, across the very many different mediums and the styles that you sort of leaned into as you've uh, approached film and games and television and live theater, et cetera, et cetera, um, I, I've been able, because I've spent so much time digging into your work to see how you've sort of artfully made choices in order to communicate the narrative. And um, I, I'm sure I'm just scratching the surface, but I want to talk about that. So um, 
and because we're on Twitch, I think it's only right that we start with video games. Um, um, but before we begin, let's just see how you're doing. Okay, so uh, yeah, I'm going to try and keep my head clear because I'm hearing everything back twice four seconds later. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> so it's like uh, my normal inside voice. Um, actually, I'm doing well. Uh, been really busy working with a number of artists as of late. And, um, you know, every day I have someone in the studio. Uh, today, David Hasselhoff will be here in about an hour, but Dave's oh. a, a friend of mine and I just like to help him every now and again, knock out a song. And he and I've had some fun performing before. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm working on uh, a couple of records right now. Just finished up the Dark Knight's Death Metal soundtrack album that'll be released in June. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, and also working with Ty West on a couple new movies of his uh he has a movie called uh titled x with kid cuddy in it and um a great cast all together and while he was setting it up in new zealand he wrote the prequel and so that was greenlit so they're they're happening back to back and then i have a few other films and tv projects coming up but yeah i'm happy to talk about whatever yeah well uh good let's start uh with some of your your video game background i um I have a little bit of an insight here because I worked at Xbox for 15 years and um, I became pretty good friends with guys like uh, Martin O'Donnell who scored the Halo. You know, he, he helped write that original big Halo theme um, and, and working with the studio head there who very much saw Halo despite its success um, with its you know, death match, its multiplayer, um, very much thought about it as a, as a narrative, as a story. Um, and you know, kind of required that of the composer to help bring that to life. Um, and in listening back, and, and I want to talk about some specifics with games, uh, but in listening back to a bunch of your work, it absolutely kind of leaps out. Um, um, so first, I just want to sort of commend you. I, I, I It's not a surprise to me, uh, following your, your journey as a composer, that this is a natural medium for you. Um, but I wonder if there are uh, if there are if the approach changes at all with video games versus other sort of cinematic mediums like film or television. Uh, it certainly is different. And I'd like to start by saying that I had two windows open and that's why I was having the feedback loop. <laughs> so here I, here I am. The irony is that I'm working with uh, software and, and very technically oriented gear all day long. And, you know, I don't have my act straight. So. You and me both, man. <laughs> so uh, video games, the thing that's that's really great about uh, them is the developers are inspired by art, for one, and there's a great deal of respect for everyone in their task on a video game. Uh, they're created by fans of the games and, and games themselves, um, which is not necessarily the case in all entertainment medium but in a video game there's an objective and oftentimes you may be uh, uh, cued to write an orchestral score or a non-orchestral score there, there are points of emphasis but the latitude that you have as a composer is pretty wide open compared to that of say uh, you know a, a huge film the larger the film the less latitude you probably have these days um, just because of the nature 
I wish they're made. Uh, now we'll see what happens uh, post COVID or let's say we're not gonna be post COVID for some time, but at this juncture where, where the box office is not uh, the same type factor as it was a year ago, a little more than a year. So perhaps the process will change, but nonetheless, video games are being produced the same as they have been always. Yeah. And gamers uh, are as uh, avid as ever. So um, I don't see there being an adverse uh, adjustment to the, the creative process. What I do love about video games is there is a great deal back and forth with the developers. Um, they share uh, art that's being developed uh, either inspired by other art or within the game. And as those, those uh, images materialize, that informs the music. Um, oftentimes you're working on segments of the game as opposed to in a linear fashion where you may in a film almost always work in a linear fashion or like a television show. Um, usually the TV shows are locked by the time we take a look at it with the showrunner and the editor and music supervisor, everyone is creatively involved. So that's a, a different process, but a game can be a little bit more tangential in the approach. And I think oftentimes game developers are looking for the composer to really hone in on what the world of that game feels like and sounds like specifically. And uh, that challenge is, is quite fun. And uh, definitely, again, I would say it leaves a tremendous amount of latitude for a composer to be inventive and to really explore your mind. So uh, yeah. I do enjoy that. Do you find, um, I've worked with a lot of studios, not as a composer, but when I was with Xbox, I worked with both third-party um, publishers like EA and um, Ubisoft and Take-Two, um, but I also worked with the internal studios um, like 343 and Turn 10. And I've, I've, each, each studio had its own culture and so um, do you find you have to sort of get the feel of um, their expectation or, you know, God forbid, maybe you find someone inside who fashions themselves a composer and really wants to give you notes. So do you, I mean, or do you, or is the, do you find it kind of a, of a sameness working, you know, across the various studios you've had to uh, compose for? Well, of course the culture is not exactly the same at every studio. And it's uh, paramount to the success of a composer and to the role of music as it uh, supports the game itself. Uh, it's paramount to get the correct information. And, uh, um, you know, a bigger game may have a, a more of a cultural, or let's say a corporate culture in the company. You know, some yeah. of these more indie games are a bit more freewheeling. And they'll support you really swinging kind of wide um, with your ideas, or at least the exploration of your ideas, experimentation. Um, sure, often there is a composer uh, person working on a game, a film, TV show, whatever. I, you know, at this, at this point in my life, I, I'm just open to whatever anyone has to say. I'm inclusive. 
I certainly am am not threatened by great ideas that come from sure. someone other than myself. So um, the most I can set the table for camaraderie, it, uh, I always do, no matter what I'm working on. You know, this is a team sport. There's, you know, if I want to put out my record, then it's incumbent upon me to write and release that record. You know, it's a different game when we're making, uh, uh, creating content for, you know, other studios. Yeah. It's a, it sounds like you, you've worked with so many sort of uh, leaders of entertainment. Um, you've either had, or you've um, evolved that skill. Um, Cause there is a sort of art to uh, the interfacing with people. And part of it is because they're so, uh, it doesn't come any from any ill intent that they're, they're so passionate about the game. These are, these are um, people who developers who sometimes are working deep into the night foods brought in for dinner. I mean, it is their life. So, um, so that, uh, and by the way, uh, I, I want to dig into a couple of the, uh, that we couldn't possibly address all of your music, but I want to dig into a few uh, of the things you've done and talk about them. Um, in fact, let's just do that now. So I, I, I went and I was uh, tooling around um, uh, YouTube and I, I pulled up the Far Cry uh, New Dawn Mean theme. And uh, it's awesome. My notes, the notes I took is you, you made use of some like cool uh, synth pads. Um, and but there was this really intriguing blend of sort of futuristic, but um, like not throwback, but there was um, you, you one of the things that I think you do so well with um, a lot of this music is you're a guitar player. I believe that was one of your first instruments. Right. Um, and you bring the guitar so sort of artfully into the composition um, in a way that, um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of soundtrack music. I, I was a child of the eighties and I still have a fondness for a lot of those soundtracks, but they don't age well. Um, what, what, I, what I hear you do so very well is the integration of guitar um, in, in instrumentation in a way that uh, it feels of part of the composition. Um, and some of these, some of these compositions, because you've been at this for so long, you know, have been around for decades and, um, they continue to have that same sort of resonance to them. Um, I wonder like, what is your process for a sort of instrument selection in order to evoke the, the, this, cause I know I've heard you talk, uh, about you, you, one of the ways you want to come at your music is narratively. So is there, is it instinctive or do you kind of associate certain instruments and sounds with uh, emotions and ideas and then you know pair them from a more intellectual perspective uh it depends on the medium uh for certain if i'm working on a film the dialogue becomes an instrument in the composition so i factor in uh the cadence of a given actor's uh dialogue and the timbre of their voice um oh. i want to i want to support that or frame that so that the music can really do its its job and will not be turned down extremely low in the mix. So I need to leave space for dialogue always. And obviously, you know, any medium is about storytelling and emotion. Uh, even if you're engaging a, a player in a game, it's still an emotional experience. And nowadays there's definitely a story uh, involved in every game. Uh, but with film and television, that's that's most important to me. And then uh, I guess it depends on the style of the film. You know, a score for Guardians of the Galaxy 
is much different than that of say 300, but they both bear um, similarities in that their emotional sequences, their violent sequences, their headspace moments. And I really just tap into some of my own experiences in life, my own thoughts. Um, and from there, I use perhaps uh, my instincts to select whichever palette of instruments I think would best serve a scene or, or a film. One of the things I, um, I saw some YouTube video, and you actually talked about this um, in an article. One of the things that you, you do that I find re really refreshing is at the, at the front end of, of collaborative music process, at, at least some of the time, before you, you know, there's all of this sort of formal dialogue, you'll pick up a, a guitar and start to play. Um, and start to create like a musical language and experience with the other person. I'd love for you to talk more about that because I know in my own personal musical experience, there's very often there's just so much conversation and formality and those kinds of things that it, it, it almost becomes an impediment to the creative process. Um, and uh, I saw you just picking up guitar and starting to jam with guys, you know, right from the go. Well, yeah, uh, I don't often write scores on guitar, even though, you know, in the morning when I brush my teeth, I see myself as a guitarist, you know, um, there is a blue collar element to me just because I'm always, always just had to work my ass off for, to, to get anywhere and never had a backup plan or a safety net, so to speak. So I love the guitar. Um, but in the context of being a composer, oftentimes you're, well, you really are thinking bigger picture. And um, if I'm having a conversation initially in my studio, let's say now we're talking throwback era, but in my studio with producers and a director or music supervisor, and there's a conversation happening, um, there's a lot of uh, conjecture or pontification about what the score can be or will be. That's Teddy in the background, by the way. I hate uh, Teddy. <laughs> so um, at any rate, uh, if there's someone trying to communicate a point, something they think about the film, I'll try and reiterate that in the form of a musical expression, whatever the instrument may be to reflect that back to them. That way I've included someone in the musical conversation without them necessarily being required to speak in musical terminology. And for them to know they've been heard early on, um, oftentimes their ideas are, are fantastic. And um, we at least try our best to run them up the, the flagpole to see if uh, they work. Um, I am very mindful that if something fails on a project, I will most likely find another work opportunity somewhere in my life. But it could be the final opportunity for a producer or a director because those projects are so hard to get greenlit so yeah. i take a uh, this with a great deal of responsibility regardless of the budget of the film it doesn't matter if i say yes it's a thousand percent um everything i can do to create a, a working process that's enjoyable and fun for everybody and also very constructive and allows anyone who has a creative investment in the product of uh, the project to uh to interact with me and and, you know, offer their ideas or two cents. 
And I'll weigh all of that uh, considerably in, in my composing uh, endeavor. So, yeah. I'm kind of wondering where you were at when I started my first band. <laughs> that uh, that <laughs> sensibility of uh, collaboration. Uh, maybe I, maybe we were all just too young back wait, then. Wait, wait, wait. Don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I don't think there's anything... Uh, uh, I don't think there's any truth to a great band with a democracy. Um, I don't believe in that, really. Um, yeah. I think there are, at best, there are two people with great ideas and other people who are excellent in supporting roles who bring great ideas to the table. Yeah. That, that's what I see with band uh, philosophy. And I've been a band leader majority of my life. So... Um, you know, that said, you know, like a, the movies, TV, games, it's all a team sport. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right on both. Well, I don't know the second world. I know the first world and, the, and you're, you're right about that. Um, okay. I want to move on. I want to talk about um, your work with DC Comics. Uh, I spent some time, I went through the whole um, Sonic Metalverse. Before we dig into that, mm -hmm. They've just announced a like a band edition, didn't they? Just a couple of months ago. Um, that, that was an unrelated, uh, that was like an international marketing oh. thing they did. So they, they did do some custom uh, comic covers with like Ozzy and some other artists that have nothing to do with our project and have nothing to actually do with the comics themselves. Okay. <laughs> so that was done completely without... Uh, DC uh, North America's knowledge as we were developing, you know, our project and our project is, is its own thing. So the concept behind what uh, I put together with uh, Matt Keller at DC Comics is to create an album that is uh, comprised of songs that are directly inspired by uh, Scott and Greg's work on Dark Knight's Death Metal, the actual comic series. So each song on the soundtrack directly relates to an issue of the comic. And this began during COVID and because it was uh, a little bit more challenging to get people physically together, uh, some of us did manage to get together safely during that time, but people are spread out around the world. So what I wanted to do was to truly authenticate the point of having a soundtrack like this of songs for a comic book uh, was to create the motion comic. So uh, we just did that in in-house here for fun. It's not yeah. like a pay, it wasn't a paid job or anything. And so I got a couple of my friends to voice some classic DC characters like Jason Moore from the Punisher and Hasselhoff to Superman. And my friend, Charles Fleischer, who was the voice of Roger Rabbit, he did the Joker. And then uh, the artist on the album, uh, I got everybody to voice characters, you know, classic DC characters. So that was super fun. Chelsea Wolf uh, did Wonder Woman and she did a very dry uh, version or expression of Wonder Woman. And once uh, fans started hearing that, they really liked that a lot. And, uh, you know, Denzel Curry was fantastic. You know, Andy Hull was great. I mean, just, we had a lot of, great uh, uh, enthusiasm and participation. And, and really me as a fan of all this stuff, um, I found it uh, necessary to communicate to the fans of DC Comics, the fans of comics, graphic novels, that 
this music has a point. It's not some BS widget that was cultivated to make a buck. It was really uh, a celebration of the medium and the talent of uh, Greg Capullo and Scott Snyder and their whole team of, of brilliant artists. Um, so that's really what it was about. And I had a great time working with a, a ton of artists on this album. Are the, so these are all folks that you knew that you were able to just sort of call up and, and ask a favor, or did you have someone helping you source? Cause like, let me just say out loud and you can correct me if I, if my notes are wrong, but Dave Lombardo um, did drums. Um, you had, you had Jerry Cantrell uh, was part of this Fred Curry from Cinderella uh, um, brand Daler from Mastodon. Like there's um, a, so, uh, like a list musicians that are part of this um this this project that you directed are these folks you have on speed dial <laughs> well we prefer a-listers <laughs> okay so i once we got going with the project um i uh made a deal with loma vista records is my label for this project so i serve as the executive producer and then i produce some of the songs, co-produce some of the songs, co-write some of the songs, mix, whatever. So uh, it just depends what uh, the situation happens to be. Um, but yeah, Dave Lombardo is one of my very close friends. Jerry Cantrell, super close friend. We just finished uh, working on his new solo record and I co-produced that with Jerry. Um, uh, for instance, the band Health, they're friends of mine and they are on Loma Vista. So Loma wanted them on the album. And actually I suggested they be on it because we've worked together before and, and we're friends. So we wrote a song together and then Loma asked about having a guest vocalist on it. And Chino Moreno is uh, Jake and John's favorite singer. So I ran it by them. I'm like, what do you think about if Chino were to sing on this? And they'd be like, yeah, that'd be dope, man. That's too much to even imagine right now. I'm like, okay, so well, let me ask Chino. And um, I'd worked with Chino before on the Dark Knights Metal album, which really did not uh, receive appropriate publicity and promotion because all of the champions of that particular record were gone from the label by the time we finished uh -huh. the album. So not Loma Vista, a different label. Anyway, we had a great creative experience. Um, uh, all of us working together and Chino was, you know, I hit him up and he's like, yeah, sure, send me the track. And so he sent his track back a couple of days later. Ron did a track with us on the first album. And so he was down. And then um, Andy Beersack, from Black Veil Brides uh, is a super, super Batman fan. So once wow. he started voicing Batman, DC like flipped out. They're like, you have to do a song with Andy. You know, I'm like, cool, I'll, I'll talk to him. And he's like, yeah, I'm down to do it. Um, and Loma Vista wanted to, you know, they asked if, if we could do it as a duet with someone. And I'm like, sure. So I had worked with Maria Brink before also on the first album. And I think she's a great artist and super cool. So I called her and asked her if she'd be down. She's like, yeah, sure. And then really only after talking for a while did I realize that her band and Andy's band had been scheduled to be on tour, um, but COVID wiped that out. And now they've rescheduled that tour starting September. So both of them are on the song. 
uh, Meet Me in the Fire. And that's probably, I think that's gonna be the first emphasis track off the record. And then the two of them will team up for a Cole headline tour in the fall. So that's that was sort of serendipitous how that worked out. So uh, you told us, but remind us when that's releasing. The album will release digitally uh, June 19th, I think. And then uh, July, the vinyl will be released, I think on the 16th. Um, there are some bands that I that I brought to the table before I even made a record deal for it that I'm very excited about. Uh, a young band, uh, Starcrawler, and they've already done a, a lot of really great things for a young band. I think they're 20 or so, and they've already played Japan like five times. But um, under the direction of Gilbert Trejo, they're uh, filming a, an epic music video to coincide with the song from the album. And... Oh. Uh, and Hasselhoff's going to be in it and Danny Trejo is going to be in it. It's going to be really fun. And the oh, songs, cool. the song's really cool. Um, so I'm excited about them. Uh, I worked with Gunship, which is a band from the UK and, and um, they're a more electronic 80s style and they're really fantastic. And so when we were having a creative conversation about working together, they asked if uh, they kept referencing Slayer and I'm like, well, what are you talking about? You know, exactly about Slayer. It's like this drum beat from this song. And so this one guy, Dan Hay, was just saying that, uh, you know, I, I would love to have like a drum beat with that attitude and kind of that vibe. I'm like, well, why don't we just have Dave play it? <laughs> so, so they just kind of flipped out over that. And, and of course, Dave is always down to do cool stuff. So uh, he did a great job, of course. And um, it was fun to connect with so many of my friends during a time when we were socially distanced or unable to actually spend time together. So it was great to connect through music. Well, it's everything I've heard um, so well done. I think the motion comics amazing. Um, I just went through them um, and you directed those. Yeah, and I know it's kind of a batshit crazy project to do because it's so much work. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because what we're dealing with is like the raw art panels, right? Which was very cool of Scott and Greg and DC to afford us and trust me with that task. And then uh, Lorena Perez Batista, who works with me, she helped at the editing. And it's really interesting because I have to source out the vocal, you know, dialogue performances with whomever I can get at the time. And they come in whenever they come in and then we have to work with it and try and get a picture together. It's not at all like making a movie or making a TV show or a, more like a game maybe, but it's really quite a Rubik's cube to, uh, to turn into anything. It was done with duct tape and we had fun doing it, but um, that was a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> you know, well, you know what I like about it is it has, it has a very, um, it has an, uh, the feeling of something that's been done um, without all the slick, you know, million dollar. And, and for that, it, it, to me, it feels like it's closer to the fans. I go to yeah. Comic-Con yeah. almost every year. And there's the really glitzy stuff that they do down in South Hall with all the new media and the show and stars. <clears throat> you wait in line like you do for a ride at Disneyland to even go in. And then they're at the far, other far end, there's the old guys that have been there forever who are just selling comics. And there's just this like, this like almost tactile experience you have by touching an old comic and talking to people who have loved these stories and these characters and these worlds forever. 
And there was that, I, I got that feeling watching this. And I think it's a, as a, you know, it was a consequence of the way you pulled it together, but I think it's amazing. Um, and the music is, is you know, I, I'm not here just to don you with faint praise. Actually, you know, I thought it was a wonderful project and I think fans of DC, uh, have you had reaction? Have, is, is anybody, I know they're fairly recent within the last six months, right? Yeah, yeah, and we didn't really even promote them yet. So they'll swing back around at the album release and we may compile something that would, would be like a short half hour film um, that would cover the scope of the entire comic series. But you, your, your perception is on point. I didn't want it to be slick at all, you know? Right. And that's why when I solicited each of the artists to give me their uh, interpretation of the character, I mean, they were all very excited. Like Andy Hall from Manchester Orchestra was like, oh my God, I get to voice Lex Luthor, that's sick, you know? <laughs> and, and so it was great to feel that enthusiasm from as fans, you know, like everybody on this album are fans of comics and I'm a fan of this whole world. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that record companies entirely understand Comic-Con and WonderCon and all this stuff like us nerds do, but um, I wanted it to be homespun. I wanted fans to know that this was made by fans. Um, sometimes things can be too slick and it can, you know, kind of fall flat. I feel like, yeah, this is just kind of some crap that's just put out there. I, I want to experience stuff that feels like I'm discovering something when I'm finding new music. So to do this was something that I felt would was really cool that DC allowed me to make such a, a crude, rough honed, uh, you know, vehicle with their uh, with their intellectual properties. So. Well, and that, that actually is one of the questions I was going to ask is, did you, you know, I've worked with IP before and, and there's often a story Bible and a whole list of commandments of things thou shalt not do. Did you, uh, did you have some kind of guardrails or did they sort of know that you would trust, they, they trusted you with this because they knew that as a fan, you would do right by it. Remarkably, they trusted me. <laughs> oh, cool, man. They gave me a script and they said, here's a script, use it as your guide. And the great thing was that both Greg Capullo and Scott Snyder were totally into it and voiced characters. And those guys are extremely busy, like all of us, but they took the time out to do it. This is like, no one was paid for doing this. We all just did it because we love it. Yeah. And that was great because that was their endorsement. And that tells the fans like, look, we're into this and we know what it is. And um, I think, we all enjoyed the fact that it it's not a corporate feeling endeavor. I mean, DC is massive. So yeah. usually, uh, usually any kind of, of products that come from DC from within are produced um, pretty tight. And I wanted it not to feel that way. I wanted it to feel like, you know, like a, a Slayer record, like an early record when you put it on, yeah. it's like, oh, if I keep listening, I think something bad might happen. You know, there's an indie quality to it that makes yeah. it exciting that, you know, that it hasn't been poured over by executives or test, you know, focus group or anything like that. This was literally last second out the door. Uh, we worked as hard as we could to make them good. Um, some of them are better than others. Some of the voice performances are better than others, but everybody put their heart and soul into their 
participation, which was awesome. No, I, everybody that's uh, seeing this, I'm hoping will go and take a look. Um, I actually watched them all on your own personal website. Um, Thank you. Uh, but I want to, I want to, there's this thing that I discovered. I'm sure I'm not the first, but as I've listened now to your music all the way back to Pet um, and the track Little Boots in the verses, um, all the way through to even the first episode of um, this sonic metal verse that you just released, there's a, there's, I, I think I can hear certain signature things about Tyler Bates. And one of the things that, that you so artfully have done um, when, when it's called for is you find these halftones. You, you find this way to bend out of like, um, a, you know, a, a perfect note um, in, the, in the same way that Steve Vai was kind of, he popularized this Xavian scale, which was like 16 notes to the octave and wrote on his big sex and religion record. He had a, he had a song that Devin Townsend sang that kind of, you know, was the first place you heard this. Um, but you, you do this so well and it, uh, it creates this wonderful tension uh, in the song. And I wanted to ask you about this. I don't know how much of this, I always ask this of artists, is this instinctive or is this something that at, you, know, you create as a, a skill or a tool that's in your sort of musical tool belt that you pull out when you know you need to achieve a certain effect? Because um, I heard it um, certainly in some of your scores, your, your film scores, uh, where you're, you're doing this and it creates this sort of sonic experience with this beautiful tension. I love it. So. Are you aware of this or is this just all natural for you? No, I'm, I'm aware of it. Um, it's not, uh, let's see. I mean, I'm conscientious of it. I'm yeah. not thinking, oh, well, I'm going to do this. Um, yeah. Certainly with movies like Dawn of the Dead and Devil's Rejects, you know, I thought myself as a fan of movies, there's nothing that's going to scare me. So I experimented a lot with uh pulling pitches and rhythms apart um, in the scores just to make you uneasy. You know, if you have a rhythm that is in tempo and then the elements start to fall out of tempo, it makes your, your heartbeat a little bit uncomfortable. Um, right. Your palms start to sweat when pitches start to pull away from one another because your, your mind is trying to, your brain's trying to reconcile the pitch. Um, so that came by way of, of a, a study that I had done going into Dawn of the Dead, but I've always had that um, aspect to my guitar playing. I mean, back in the day, of course, there was the guitar abuse that uh, I participated in and uh, led to me quitting and giving all my guitars away and then rebooting a couple months after that. Um, but that tension is something that I feel. Um, I like the feeling of of something about to maybe fall apart in a transition, you know, I mean, Led Zeppelin, obviously great band, uh, always had that tension in their transitions. And I would, I would attribute a lot of that to John Bonham. Uh, his, his drumming was definitely that. And um, it provided that, but even just my work, uh, like with uh, Manson, it, I didn't want everything to feel perfectly in tune um, because I wanted that work to be a little bit more personal than previous works he'd, he'd done. Now, mind you, I don't always play semi out of tune. I mean, the guitar's in tune. It's all my hands. 
Yeah. But um, yeah. But you know, I, I think it's fun to play with. I think it's effective if you do land chords, you know, and you reestablish pitch, you reestablish tempo. Um, I think then that it's effective. Uh, it's it doesn't make me feel good just to be outside of pitch always. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I that's not the impression I got at all. Yeah, um, but it's an emotional was, thing. It's a, definitely an emotional thing, I would say. Yeah, there was always, it was always um, in service of coming back to some resolution point. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, just, I thought it very effective. And, and to be frank, it's not a compositional technique that I hear very often, um, which is, I think, one of the reasons that it, it um, sort of leapt out at me. Um, and I began to see it as just a tool that you use that I think you do use effectively. You mentioned uh, Marilyn Manson, so let's talk about that. Um, I read the story, I think you, you met on the set of Californication, is that accurate? Yes, yeah. Um, how did, from that, from that meeting, how did that eventuate in your co-writing and, and producing um, and, and touring with him? <laughs> oh my God, yeah, Manson. <laughs> That's a long, complicated story, this man. Um, So we met on the set of Californication because there was an episode toward the end of season six. It was the end of season six. And he had played himself uh, on the show. And we needed, there was a wedding taking place at the Greek theater in LA. And uh, Tom Kapanos, the show creator, wanted to have a a live concert uh, so that the environment was authentic. So many of the, the actors on Californication are musicians, uh, you know, like David Duchovny and, and of course, Steve Jones from that season uh, from the Sex Pistols. Uh, and uh, Tim Minchin was the lead in that season. And Manson wanted to participate in this live show, even though he wasn't in the episode, <laughs> I don't think. Uh, maybe he had a one shot or something in it. So anyway, for whatever reason, when I first met him, uh, we had a little bit of a contentious uh, beginning. You know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak, at first. But he was persistent with me. And it was the strangest thing. We did perform together a couple of times because there was the show episode where we did a short set. And then two days later, we did a rap party for the season having completed its filming. And they do huge parties that's that are like concerts with, you know, tons of uh, alcohol and everything else going on, and food trucks, and it's a really great uh, uh, event that they they threw. And so um, I MD'd those events, and so we played a couple times, and Manson, you know, started talking to me about doing something together, and um, that went on for like a year. Um, and then finally, we did another Californication concert, even though he wasn't involved in the final season. And at that point, he asked if he could come to my studio. And so, you know, I, I told him if he was very serious, then yeah, you know, about reinventing is what I said. If you're very serious about reinventing, sure. So that's where we began. Um, I know that uh, obviously at the moment, there's a lot of very distressing uh, accounts uh, out there uh, about people's experience with Manson and those are to be taken very seriously. But I would say that 
he's a complex person and I had a lot of great times working with him, creating with him. He definitely turned me on to a lot of great music and literature and art. Um, you know, that's more the side of my experience. Uh, the, the, the extremely dark side is not something that, uh, I experienced personally so much. Obviously there's the theatrics that occur on tour. I mean, he made it so I could go on tour at my availability. So I, they allowed me to put the band together. So it was all my friends. And then I could step in when I was available. So I was able to go out and tour with him, do about 110 shows, you know, all over the world, which was great especially considering that's where I began I did like you know Vans Warped Tour all that stuff and never had the opportunity to play for 20 to 50,000 people at a time and so I I had plenty of those experiences playing music I had written with Manson with my friends in the band and that was great but enough was enough and I had left that uh, you know probably three and a half years ago almost and um you think you know. you'll ever go back out on tour? Is that an itch you have, or did you satisfy? Um, well, uh, Jerry Cantrell wants me to go out and play in support of his record. I mean, I'm really more interested in do, you know supporting stuff that I that I've written personally. But Jerry's a close friend, and again, that would be my buds. Uh, we'd have a great time, so I would do that. I've done some shows with Jerry, and you know, he's he's one of the finer human beings that I know. So um, it would be great. His, um, his Allison Chains out of that, I, I end up, ended up in Seattle because of the whole grunge explosion. And of all of the bands that were, came out of that era, um, for me, Allison Chains is far and away the best. Um, Always was for me too. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a, a uniqueness and timelessness to their music that um, as much as some of those other bands uh, are really great, uh, they were just, I don't know, they kind of hit my, my cookies, so to speak. I just, uh, so if you do that tour, please come to Seattle. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's inevitable. <laughs> and you, you know, it's, you know, it's been really great is so um, for the DC album, one of the songs on it is a, a song I wrote with Greg uh, Pucciato, who was the leader of Dylan or Dillinger's escape plan, right? Dillinger's yeah. escape plan. Yeah. And then Gil Sharon, who was in Manson's band as the drummer, but does a ton of things, you know, and he was in Dillinger years ago and, and was the drummer on one of their records. So those two are good friends. And Gil's the one who suggested that I introduce Jerry Cantrell and Greg, uh, because we did some shows with Jerry, just, uh, kind of a, uh, retrospective of his career we did a couple of shows in December of 2019 and he and Greg just became fast friends and Greg sings all that material that's represented by Lane Staley so well um, not to ape Lane Staley because he Greg is a badass in his own right and he has way too much respect for Lane Staley to try yeah. and emulate him but the way he and Jerry uh, hang together, the way they sing together is really great. And so he sings a lot on Jerry's new record with him. Oh, that's uh, cool. So it makes me feel really good that those two have become great friends and the prospect of us all going out and playing shows together would be a blast. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope that happens. I'll keep my fingers crossed for that. It will. Um, uh, and we can, we can meet in person when you come through town. Uh, of course. I'll be there. Um, and Lane Staley, I, I studied voice with the same guy who, who trained Lane. Um, and he, he was fond of having pictures of all of his uh, students on the wall. And there was this great picture of Lane in his band before Allison Change, which was actually a glam thing. Um, very sort of different persona. And it's fun for me to listen to him because I can hear tonally, I can hear exactly what he's doing relative to what he, what he learned. Um, there, there's a famous vocal trainer here by the name of David Kyle. Um, trained some really big voices like Jeff Tate and Ann Wilson. And Lane is one of the guys who came through his studio. Um, so, and he was, my, my vocal trainer was actually one that turned me on to them. So um, big fan. Uh, but I, I look forward to hearing, is this new record that um, is coming out, are we part of the production element of that? Yeah. Yeah, so, it's, yeah it's been a conversation Jerry and I've had for two years. Okay. And so... I mean, I just helped set the table to make it all happen more organically than locking out a studio and bringing in musicians or hiring musicians. It's all friends uh, that, that perform on the record. That's yeah. cool. All right. Any timing you can clue us in on with that? It looks, we should see it this, this fall. Okay. That's great. Yeah. It's a so. fantastic record and, and it's not, I don't think it's exactly what people might expect if they were to expect one thing over the next, but um, I think the songwriting is phenomenal. The lyrics are really, really great. And the whole record is like a very cinematic experience. So I think people will really enjoy it. Oh, that's exciting. Yay. Um, okay, let's uh, take our last few minutes and talk about some of the big films uh, you've worked on. I'm sure these are things you've um, spoken about before, um, but I know folks who are with us here watching us have some interest in this. You've worked on some of, I think, the biggest and, and most fun franchises, film franchises over the last many years. Um, and as in, in doing some sort of background work on this, I learned that, that you know, you created this, um, this rapport with James Gunn that was really unique such that, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they actually played some of your music during production, uh, which I think is different. And I was hoping you'd talk to us a little bit about that and, and the actor's reaction to actually acting while musical themes are playing. In theory, it's an awesome opportunity to begin to develop the musical language for a film, especially a franchise like Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, so yeah, James and I had done, I don't know, I think I did like a 10 or 11 shorts with him and a couple, two movies before we got into Guardians. And um, so I started writing some sketches based on our conversations. And the first thing I, I did was, uh, I, I just called it Black Tears. And I think it's still that on the first soundtrack album, but it's more like a post-rock orchestral thing that still has a lot of grandeur um, to it. So this, this franchise has been really interesting um, in that it affords me the opportunity to really state grand themes, huge themes that are almost like throwbacks, you know, because it's very rare that films uh, have long 
melodic themes. Um, they're usually just little licks that we recognize as the theme. Um, but yeah, this this gives us kind of a long long throw. And the the great thing uh, in working on the music in advance was James and I would you know just push these ideas back and forth. And by the time he got into production on the first film, there were perhaps I don't know six or seven you know themes that were integral to the movie that he would play on the set. And the actors enjoy that so much. Um, when, well, when I visited the set, Chris Pratt had remarked to me immediately, he's like, dude, that was so effing amazing to work with the music cranked up on the set. And then I was in a scene on that movie, but uh, when they got to reshoots, I asked him to shoot me out of the movie because um, I was too busy writing the music for the movie. But I felt what it was like when they were playing Cherry Bomb on set. I'm like, all right, this is pretty awesome. What it does for your mindset. So what it enabled the what it, the information it gave the actors was kind of the syntax of the movie, you know, because it's a lot of green screen and it really helped fill in some of the blanks. So um, going into the the second film, I I repeated the same type thing, and and it definitely helped us get down to uh, the heart of what the, the major themes would be in that film. Um, the only issue is, is that it requires a ton of time to, to develop that. And that's, that's kind of outside the scope of the job that, the, that I'm hired to do. So there, there have been times where um, I've not been able to do that on projects uh, because I'm busy on, on a few things. And you know as it is on a regular week, you know, I'll work 70 hours. So when I get up to 85, I just don't have any more in me, you know? So, um, but I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I've done that with John Wick, you know, those movies, uh, we've been able to lay up some of the themes, but in Guardians on the second one, they actually shot with earbuds in the actor's ears and they digitally removed them in post. Wow, that's cool. I'm not an actor, but I have, my, my emotional response to music is such that I would have to think it would create a feeling, help you feel things that you wouldn't otherwise. Um, yeah, I'm not an actor. <laughs> I'm so not an actor. <laughs> totally not. You know, I'm fine smashing a guitar, but if you want me to carry a line, you're in trouble. So um, that's not me either. I can't do it. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of your other films. Um, so you you scored 300. Uh, and I hadn't known that. I went back and listened to the soundtrack for that. Uh, the, and I think what, I think what it, it leads me to, and maybe it's more of a comment, but there's a, there's, um, you really have this, this broad ability to uh, attack or um, interpret and, and score for different kinds of movies. The, the, the soundtrack to 300, there's a whole bunch of very percussive um, stuff. Um, almost tribal. Um, there are places in there where there's, um, I don't know what the, the, the women, woman is singing, but it's like a, a um, in an Arabic scale uh, against some of the other uh, music. And it's, it's, it's got an entire feeling all its own. And then I go to a, a film like the, the Day the Earth Stood Still, and it's so ambient. Um, and you use a very, very subtle use of bells. In fact, there's one song and this could be me just like getting too deep inside my head, but you have these chimes or something at the front end of a song 
I think I have it in my notes, but at the end of the song, that same chime is reversed. And I thought, wow, how subtly awesome uh, to see the, 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 you know, the tones being used in different ways inside the same. But the, the, the feeling I came away with is your ability to stretch to the purpose of the, of the film. Um, and, I, and I wondered, is that, um, I mean, it, how much of that is you being a student uh, as a musician of film and of the process and being thoughtful and reacting to all of the input? And how much of that do you think is, you know, innate, um, your, you know, not so much um, programmatic, but more instinctive? It's a, it's a combination. Again, my job is to best interpret the sensibility of a director and, and others who are creatively invested in the outcome of a movie so that I can get the correct information. Uh, really my education about film score came through working with directors, producers, music editors and editors, re-recording mixers. I, I started just because someone asked me at a party or a barbecue or something, if I could write some music for the movie. Nice. I did like 18 movies before I ever even met someone who'd written music for a movie. Is that so, right? Wow. Yeah. So I was definitely uh, finding my way through the dark. Um, you know, my 15th movie was a bebop score that Blue Note released. Uh, so that's perhaps a moment where I really thought, yeah, you know, I could do this. Um, I could be into it. You know, every movie is pretty terrifying when I begin, you know, because uh, the expectations that I have of myself and that others do is, is quite high. And yeah. rare, rarely do I meet that mark, but uh, I try. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've always been a student of music. I love all styles of music. There's yeah. great, there's great music in, in all styles, all genres of music. There's garbage too, but um, but again, I'm really thinking about the storytelling, thinking about the emotion of that story and the sensibilities of the director. And that really influences my choices. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think your, your answer is right, of course, but I, I, um, I think when you began, you must have had some really, really good instincts because even in some of your early films, maybe before you had, you know, um, had as much experience with the process and with the people um the music just it sits really well against the narrative um it's the kind of thing i noticed just because um i care a lot about uh the narrative motion in music um so i'm just it's just a compliment i i it's i think it's something that you were born with and something that you have been right to uh, encourage and nurture <laughs> well, i appreciate that I'm still wondering what I'm doing with my life, but, um, you know, <laughs> well, I've, I've always been like a band leader and always written the majority of the, the music for the bands that I've worked with. But, um, you know, back in the day, you know, I would look for a great singer to work with and whatever their style was, is what I would write for because, uh, it was much more difficult to link up with people, um, when I was younger. So the, I've always been uh, mindful and, and sensitive to the objective of the singer and, and what I can create that will frame their talent um, 
in the best way possible. So I think that experience really helped me with film scoring and conversely working with directors helps me now working with uh, every artist that's in my studio and, and no two processes are the same. Everybody has their own way of working. So uh, working on films allows me to adapt and be intuitive to that. Well, let me, let me let's talk about a song uh, that you did fairly recently. Um, it was, uh, and, and if I get this name mispronounced it, let me know, but Michael uh, Caravolo's Beauty and Chaos, you, you reimagined a, a track of his called Temple of Desire. Mm -hmm. um, and that song is, uh, I got chills listening to that song. It has this haunting, uh, it's not the same, same kind of song, but it has that same haunting quality that Chris Isaac's Wicked Game has. You just listen to it and there's just this beauty and this this haunting melody and this the the music that you wrote to highlight um Perlman's voice uh, I mean that song should deserves a lot more recognition and I I so the, one the song's gorgeous but Thanks. two I I wanted to know um how did what how did you how did you go about reapproaching a song that was already kind of a good song and, and, and inhabiting it in a way to, I guess, give it your own signature. Um, um, this, by the way, this rendition, much <laughs> as the, the first one, this rendition, I think, is superior. I, you know, I, that's all taste. But um, anyway, so. Thank you. Uh, Michael Ciravolo, who is the leader, curator of Beauty and Chaos, has been a longtime friend of mine for forever. Rafe Perlman, the, the vocalist, also is a longtime friend and he's an incredible singer. Yeah. Um, so Michael asked me if I would do a remix or something, you know, I think remixes, you know, the term is not really something I'm super excited with, but uh, he assured me that he would prefer a reimagining of the song. And so I just got into it and I maintained some of the integrity of the chord structure that Michael had created initially and then I took out a lot of the, the sections of the song that I felt that, that uh, maybe diminished the power of Rafe's performance emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, but the only way I could do that really is to, to rework everything and replay the music. Um, I was inspired by the initial track to begin with. And then it all just happened kind of quick because Michael's like, uh, you, you, did you hit that track yet? <laughs> I kind of need it. So um, we're close friends and thankfully uh, he trusts and respects me enough to uh, just kind of divert from his initial idea and do my thing. Yeah, the song's great. Um, uh, the video's great too. Uh, um, I'm, I'll am i have to put up a link for it for people. Uh, oh, that's right. They shot a video. They shot it here, I think. Yeah, there's my, a bunch of footage. Of, that's right. Yeah, and getting to watch the performances, uh, you know, kind of the, the behind the scenes making of, um, really well done. Um, so just a couple more questions, Tyler. Uh, I wanna circle back real quick on Deadpool. So um, it's interesting to me that, I mean, that film is so rife with humor and deadpan and vulgarity. <laughs> and uh, you play the, I think you've talked about this, but you play the, uh, you don't play the soundtrack too much for, for the, for the, for the laughs. 
Um, like the, you know, there's no kazoos going or bums when, when you hear it. No slide whistle. No slide. No, very good. That's right. So I, I wondered, like, um, is, was your thought that um, the contrast of, of the, of your score would somehow emphasize the comedy? I mean, what was the thought process? Because, I mean, that's just, you almost don't go a beat in that, in that without some line you, you could miss for its comic effect. You know, that movie's so fascinating to work on because every cut, you know, because as you're working on a film, the editor is refining the cut with the director and the producers and Ryan. And because Ryan's wearing the Deadpool mask, he constantly revises his jokes. So <laughs> so the picture may not change, but the joke changes. Um, they really wanted the music to be straight for the most part the jokes are funny enough. And I think the straighter the music is, the funnier the, the dialogue can be. Um, obviously there is, is the, the moment with the choir that occurred. Um, you know, you can't stop this mother. That whole business really was. Holy, uh, holy something balls. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know what we can or cannot say here, but really um, that was a, a great moment. And it, it's something that I try to, set the table for on every scoring project. And that's for a really memorable moment as it applies to our life, all of us that are working on the film. And uh, David Leach is a terrific guy, the director. Um, and I think that was my third movie with him. And that was his first choir session that he'd ever witnessed. So he walked in while we were working on that. And um, oh, I hear, David Hasselhoff is ringing my doorbell. Uh, so oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like a pop culture cauldron around here. But so anyway, David walked into the session and he was like completely blown away seeing the choir. And of course, I'm not one who can write a lyric that's going to go in the mouths of the choir. But I'm like, hey, Dave, if you pay attention to what their cadence is, you know, we can, you know, work with them and put some lyrics in their mouths. And he's like, are you serious? We can do that. I'm like, of course we can. So, uh, so we gave him a pad and pen and, and, you know, in about 15 minutes, he had these lyrics and after the choir took their break, we just worked with them for a while and it was so much fun. Everyone had a, just such an incredible time. And I actually spoke to that choir contractor, Sally Stevens recently, a few days ago, actually. And she remarked on how that was the most fun session of her career. And, um, you know, those moments are there to be seized upon we are making we're creating entertainment and we want to have fun in the process and you know so it's 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 important to me to to find those moments so that we all really feel the camaraderie of working together and and remember that <laughs> you hear that you've got guests uh, yeah. no, that, that that song is um it's it's you can't listen to it smiling uh you know it's just it, it's um it's great it's gonna it's a yeah. But my last question for you is a bi biographical question. Uh, I ha and it's just, my, my curiosity is killing me. In your bio, you say that you unwittingly dug a grave. <laughs> I have to know what that is. So, several. Um, oh my God. Okay, so I didn't realize, you know, when I, one of my high school jobs, I, I always worked, but uh, was working for a friend. Um, this is all verifiable, but uh, 
so I'd, I worked after school on, on this guy's property and, you know, he's, he has a birth defect. So he only has two fingers on one hand. And uh, this was in, in the outskirts of Chicago in a rural area. So one day he asked me to dig in the yard with him. And so I was digging, it was kind of soft soil, but he was shoveling this white powder in to the, uh, to the trenches I was digging. And I'm like, what, what's that for? He's, well, he says, in case the water runs in and stagnates, it'll eliminate the odor. Okay, you know, I didn't think anything of it. Didn't think anything nefarious was at play. Um, but so anyway, there was an instance where this person and his partner, let's say, in crime, uh, were arrested for uh, a robbery in London in 1981. And so um, years later, I was living about a third of a mile away from this property with my aunt. And I was going out for a run one day. This is, you know, I'm a full-time musician at this point. And uh, there were helicopters circling around. I see Eyewitness 7. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I go back inside the house and I turn on the TV. And first thing I see is a camera shot from the helicopter on the property. And the first thing I hear is trace human remains are found in the, the shallow graves of blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, my God, I dug those graves. <laughs> I can't believe it. So needless to say, uh, I did, I did have a knock at the door later that day to ask if I knew anything. And I just said, no, nah, I'm renting a room here. So I know nothing. <laughs> that was eight years later, but that was uh, one of the uh, many, many remarkably bizarre moments in my life. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, there's uh, I, I encourage people to go check out Tyler's website. His, even before he picked up his first guitar, his life was, um, interesting he's got he's got some a lot of interesting early stories well hey so what's next for you what did what can you tell us that you're working on that we can watch for okay well uh joanne higginbottom and i are back on the second season of gendy tartakovsky's primal and okay. gendy has another show coming up that uh, that we'll be endeavoring in and then uh ty west a director i've worked with uh, in the past has two movies uh, that he's filming sequentially. And uh, through my work with Chelsea Wolf on the sound, the DC soundtrack, uh, she had expressed that she wanted to explore film in some fashion. And then, you know, Ty and I had discussed the concept for the score for his movies and they're vocal centric. And she's an incredible singer. So I thought, why not, you know, ask her to participate as my co-composer. So. She is on both of those movies, uh, the first of which is titled X, and the second one is titled Pearl. And uh, there's a Jamie Foxx movie coming up and a couple more TV shows and looks like uh, the John Wick for uh, sometime this year. So, Well, no rest for the weary, huh? Nope, but uh, I'm always excited every day that I'm uh, on this earth. You know, there's always something cool that can happen. So, uh, Yeah, man. Yeah, never short of inspiration. Well, uh, folks, if you get a chance, go take a look at uh, Tyler's website. He's he's got so much such diversity across all these mediums of musical expression. Um, it's been an honor, um, Tyler, to talk to you. Thank you for spend, spending some time. And um, we will leave you to David Hasselhoff, who's probably <laughs> waiting for you in the living room or something. Yes, he is. Yeah, no, he's he's great. He's a wonderful guy. I'm really uh, 
really glad that he's he's in my life so all right man well thanks again and for folks that are with us on the the stream uh, i'm gonna do a replay of john petrucci's uh interview where he talks about all of his um his doings for folks who want to watch that so tyler my friend thank you so much and uh we'll talk to you soon all right have a great day peter okay take care all right take it easy bye-bye